Good morning. Would you turn with me to Psalm 24, your Bible? It's good to be with you. Thankful for the opportunity. Always a blessing to fellowship with you all. I'll bring you greetings from our church, Falls Brian Bible Church, where it uh, seems like it's been uh, some time since we did have an opportunity to fellowship together, but I know we had at least a time a number of years ago to have a passion service with some of you around Easter time. I want to bring a message this morning on Psalm 24, worshiping the King of glory. And if you've read through the Psalms, some of this Psalm sounds familiar. Even if you read consecutively, you would have just read about 10 psalms before, some of the same content. And so as we read through Psalm 24, if you don't recognize that, I'll just point it out, but then we'll look and see what this psalm is teaching us about the Lord. This is a psalm of David. David writes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. And if you recognized in verse 3 that question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's what I'm talking about. If you look back at Psalm 15, Psalm 15 Just read these five verses. Again, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. What is David talking about? He's talking about the worshipers of Yahweh, the worshipers of the king. And there he asks the question, who will dwell with, who will commune with the Lord? And that is answered by David in Psalm 15. It's really answered here in this psalm as well. There is a life that we would say is fitting for those who serve and worship the Lord. God gives direction to his people to live according to his word, according to his laws. And this psalm asked that question in verse 3, but prior to it, there's an establishing of the greatness of the king who is being worshipped. I think you see that in verses 1 and 2, and then that question, verse 3, of who are his worshipers who rightfully can dwell with God, worship God in his holy mountain. But then there's an additional element to this psalm in verses 7 through 10, which describe the entrance of one 
into or in through everlasting doors. And his name is Yahweh. He's the king of glory. And so what is this psalm talking about? What's the particular emphasis of this psalm beyond just what was in Psalm 15? And if we could go back into the Old Testament and think about the people of Israel and how they fought their battles, some have suggested that this psalm is a sort of song or a chant that at the end of a victorious battle, they would come to their capital, perhaps Jerusalem as it was established, and there would be a grand entrance of the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God. There'd be an entrance of praise and rejoicing for God giving them the victory. Sort of like if you've ever heard of a Roman triumph as they won a battle and came back, there's a parade of celebration and the one who led in the battle is acclaimed for what he has done in leading the people. But in Israel, we do understand that God went with his people into battle. Whether Jericho or at other times in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant was actually taken out into battle. Of course, when it was the sons of Eli, the Ark of God was taken, and God, though the symbol went with, he did not go with, and that one ended in defeat. But that symbol of the presence of God in the land of the Philistines, God demonstrated his authority over those false gods, as even the ark was taken, and in Dagon's temple, Dagon ends up on his face before the symbol of Yahweh's presence. But what about those battles when he is victorious? And I think this psalm, by some would suggest this is a, a psalm that could have been sung in celebration. The psalms were meant to be sung, chanted, read, certainly, and this would be fitting for such an occasion. But as we look at this psalm, we look at what David is saying in this psalm, I believe what David is speaking of here is prophetic. It's not speaking of any particular Old Testament victory, although when the Lord goes out into battle, he always wins. He does not ever lose. But there's a victory that the King of Glory won, and it is worth rejoicing in. And even as I've listened to the hymns this morning, the songs this morning, text of Scripture this morning, there's some reverberations from what we've heard already we can see in this psalm. But let's begin with just what David expresses at the beginning. He doesn't use the word king in verses 1 and 2, but he talks about the realm over which the Lord reigns. He speaks of it in terms of ownership and founding or creation. Verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Yahweh, the self-existent, life-giving, eternal, unchanging, sovereign God. He has built this world, he founded this world, and he owns this world and absolutely everything in it. There's not anything outside of his kingdom. And man may make his claim from time to time, Man sometimes claims and obtains a portion of land or even a significant portion of land, but it's not long before that man dies and passes away and his claims fail. But the Scriptures not only say the earth is the Lord's, but it says the fullness thereof. So not only the whole globe and everything on it, mountains, hills, oceans, 
But he says in Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Psalm 148, in light of the fact that he owns everything, he is worthy of the praise of everything that he has made. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says, from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. God owns everything. And everything is to praise Him. That's what we heard even in Psalm 103, although in Psalm 103, the added element of the angels who are in the heavens, they serve sometimes as they come to earth and serve God's purposes on the earth. But God obviously owns everything in the heavens as well. The focus here, though, is the earth and all the contents of the earth. And why? Because he founded the earth. Verse 2 says, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I don't know if you read those statements and it seems a little odd that God would make a foundation out of water. And you might wrestle with that. There were waters before the Lord said, let the dry land appear. And so there's some who may point to that particular order of creation to describe what God done, God had done in creation. I do believe this is poetic. It's just intended to describe the power, creativity of God to found the earth, to establish it by himself. Where were you, God asked Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? God has made everything. He has founded everything. Psalm 104, he established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled at the sound of your thunder. They hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so they will not return to cover the earth. God has made everything in his wisdom, in his power. And so, yes, all things are to praise him. Even God calls upon inanimate things to praise him. Psalm 103, I had already thought about this verse, connected it to this, even this theme, bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. That expands beyond the earth to the universe, everything that God owns, everything is to bless the Lord. And certainly for the peoples of the world, the nations of the world, which he has made, God is a nation builder. He's the one who brings nations into existence. He sets them on the stage of history. And sometimes they exist for a long time according to his purposes. Other times there's a shorter existence for a particular group of people. But whatever his purpose for whatever nation, that nation was created to accomplish his purposes, to fulfill his purposes, and that nation rightly should praise him. In fact, that's Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth, Selah. So God is making this claim. David is rejoicing, certainly, in his king and this claim that he has, that the earth belongs to him and everything in it, and he's praising his king for it. And I wonder, by the way of application this morning, do you praise him? If everything that he has created and made is to praise him, has an obligation to praise him, do you praise him? 
I'm not asking if you just sing the songs when you come to this place, but do you praise the Lord? Do you find yourself lifting up your voice, whether in word, just simply the word, or in song, and he's worthy of our songs and our new songs? And so as you think today about what we have just done and what we hope to continue to do, and then throughout the week that the Lord gives us in His providence, will my voice this week be lifted up in praise to God? He's worthy of that. He made you for that. He's created you for His glory, and part of the glory that He receives from us is the praises that come from our lips, and certainly the way that we live our life gives testimony to His greatness as well. Now, if you don't worship the Lord, if you don't talk about the Lord, if you don't praise the Lord, you realize that you're missing one of the purposes for your existence. He's created you for that very reason. And sometimes we find ourselves praising other things, praising things that we see, praising a sports team or whatever it might be, but what is most often on your lips? Is it the praise of the Lord? He's certainly worthy of that. And His Word gives us many truths to meditate on, to praise Him for. And as you think about the cattle on a thousand hills, or every beast of the forest, or even those birds that we see that are flying around, we see the, the beauty, we see the creativity of God. He made that. And why don't I praise Him? It's really unbelief and a failure to see, failure of faith to see that all these things testify to him. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. I came across a stanza of that that I had not sung before. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. If somebody followed you throughout the course of your week, would they hear you singing? You might say, well, nobody wants to hear me sing. God wants to hear you sing. So even if you can only make a joyful noise, right, that's our opportunity to give praise to the Lord. And it doesn't happen only through our songs. It also happens through our words. And that is even a word of testimony at times where we praise the Lord to someone who may not even know the Lord, gives us an entrance in for the sake of the gospel as we talk about our great God. The earth is the Lord's, that's the claim. This is his kingdom, this is the king. Worship the king, praise the king. But in verse 3, David asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And as he continues here down through verse 6, I believe he's describing the worshipers of the king, the righteous and rightful worshipers of the king. I say the righteous and the rightful. Righteous because the way that they're described is righteous. Rightful because those who live in such a way are pleasing to the king and have a right to worship him. If you live a wicked life contrary to God's law and word, we don't deserve to. Praise the Lord, by his grace, he changes us and saves us so that we might become like Christ and then one day find ourselves according to the description that's given here. But this is a solemn question as he begins to describe the worshipers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? It's a solemn question. Who can even enter into, rightly, the presence of our God, who is a consuming fire, who is holy? There is none like him. Who can enter into the presence of Yahweh, the self-existent, unchanging, life-giving, eternal and sovereign God? And then not only entering in, but who can stand there 
The picture of worship is to bow before God. One commentator said, as this verse describes, he says, this is a fine picture of worship. Not because, obviously bowing is appropriate, but there's also the idea of ascending up into the hill of the Lord, this dominion of this great king who dwells upon the mountain and then stands there before him in that holy place. We find in Scripture at times individuals going up on the mountain, worshiping the Lord. Abraham did it. God provided a ram in the place of his son, and he worshiped the Lord there. That's what Moses did on Sinai. That's what the disciples did as they went up the Mount of Transfiguration and did not know what the Lord had in store for them there. But as they began to see Christ light up, they saw his glory, and there was a time certainly of worship there. So this is describing the approach of the worshiper to the holy Yahweh, the one who is like no other. What makes a place holy? Well, God made everything. But when His manifest presence is in a location, in proximity to a worshiper, God sanctifies that place as he did at the burning bush with Moses. And remember when Moses saw the burning bush and he approached, and then the voice of the Lord came out from the bush and he realized who was speaking to him. And the Lord said, take your shoes from off your feet for the place where you're standing on is holy. This is just an ordinary bush in the desert. But it's the presence of the great I am that had made that a holy place. Perhaps we could think in terms of the holy place, the tabernacle, where God gave a picture on earth of what heaven is like. Remember, Hebrews says that the tabernacle and even the priesthood and all those sacrifices were shadows, but Christ is the substance. We learn something of the holiness of God even as we look at the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple, which is a picture of that heavenly temple, that holy place that had one entrance, had a laver for the priest to wash in. There was an altar of sacrifice. As you entered into the holy place, there was the table of showbread. There was the lampstand. There was the altar of incense, which symbolized the prayers of God's people. And then beyond that holy place, there was a veil to separate the holy place from the holiest place, that veil which was embroidered with cherubim to signify the presence of beings who we see in other places in Scripture surround the throne of God and they worship God and they cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of His glory. And in that place, one time a year, a man of Israel, chosen by God, anointed by God as the high priest, could enter into that place with a cloud of incense that had been put upon the altar and blood in a basin, and he would go in, and one time a year, he was permitted to go in and sprinkle the mercy seat. And should he misstep, should he fail to recognize the significance of all of those commands and certainly the one who gave them, his life could be taken. So this God who dwells in a holy place is not to be trifled with. He's not to be thought of lightly. He is holy. This is the God of heaven. This is the one that we worship. This is the one who owns the world and everything in it. And so, yes, he has demands upon those who would come before him. You could not enter into his presence as a high priest without blood. There was a message there. 
Of course, we understand how that is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ as he shed his blood. But from that question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place, we become focused on a singular individual. You could say it's a type, and certainly there is something that is described in the ethical requirements here that we would say that ought to characterize every person who is a worshiper of God. But I say there's a singular individual here. As we go through these descriptions, I think we'll see that this, these descriptions are singular. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. This person who is described, who can enter into the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his holy place, is innocent. His hands are clean. They've not been defiled by sin or transgression. The scriptures use the word clean, obviously not just to note the absence of dirt or grime, but the absence of anything that would spiritually defile and corrupt And this word is the idea of innocence. It's without guilt. One person said to have innocent hands is to be one whose hands have not worked deeds that defile. And so I think if we ask that question this morning of ourselves, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. Can you look at your hands? And say that they are clean? Have you ever done anything with your hands? Have you ever done any deeds against God, against someone else? Have you acted in sinful ways? Have you used your hands to do harm? Micah chapter 7 describes the wicked in the time that Micah prophesied, and he said, concerning evil, both hands do it well. They were ambidextrous in evil. And if we're honest, we really don't fit that category. We're born into this world as sinners. We don't have clean hands. We need our hands cleansed. Let's keep going. It says, a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and it's and, it's not or, so it's both. The Song of Solomon uses this word. The husband describes his spouse as the pure child of the one who bore her. And later he speaks of purity as the sun without any fault, without Any blemish is the idea. So if you think about the heart, a pure heart, a heart without any faults, no marks or blemishes that would mar its perfection. Is that your heart? Is your heart uncontaminated, free from any blemish? Blessed are the pure in heart, we read this morning, for they shall see God. But the reality is that none of us are pure. Our hearts are wicked and sinful. Proverbs 29, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Oh, we're in need of cleansing and God's grace. We're in need of what David said in Psalm 51. Same writer said, create in me a clean heart. He knew that his heart was not pure. He knew that his heart was not clean. He knew that he needed a change from God. And when his heart was right, he asked the Lord, let my Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Needed his heart cleansed. He goes on and says, Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I think the phrase, Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, could be applied in a number of ways, but I'm going to suggest it applies to, in the Old Testament, to idolatry, to idolatry. So the soul of the one who is spoken of here is not lifted up to any idol. 
It's not set upon any object of worship other than the right one. When you lift up your soul towards something, you value it. Like a man who is in an impoverished condition and he's worked and the person that he's worked for is to give the money as he's earned it because he sets his heart upon it, he sets his soul upon it, he sets value upon it because it's going to sustain his life. The idea is, is, is you're, you're valuing what you're setting your, your heart toward or your soul toward. And you can find in t- at times in Scripture where someone is setting their soul upon or setting their heart or lifting up their heart to sin, valuing what God hates. In Ezekiel 18, verse 5, speaking of one who is righteous, he does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. So he doesn't lift up his soul or even his eyes to that which God hates and is not truly a rightful object of worship. But you could follow this through the Psalms and see at different times the idea of lifting up your soul to the Lord involves trust. Psalm 86, verse 3, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I cry, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul in trust. I lift up my soul in hope. I'm lifting up my soul in worship. I'm setting my soul to you. And God is true. But what he says in the, in the psalm is he does not lift up his soul to what is false. So there's the absence of trust in anything else. The worshiper of the Lord lifts up his soul to the Lord and not to anything else. He doesn't place a value on anything else. When it says he does not lift up his soul to what is false, the idea there is what is worthless. It is false. It says something about God that's not true. It could be an idol. And I would just ask you this morning... Have you ever lift up, lifted up your soul towards what is false? Have you ever set your heart upon something that was displeasing to God or an object of your trust and hope that was not appropriate, that was not fitting, that was not God? The one who's described here, this singular individual, has never lifted up his soul to what is false. And he has never, verse 4, sworn deceitfully. So, in addition to his soul being untainted by idolatry, he also is living a life that's marked by integrity. Mentioned that back in Psalm 15, the one who swears to his own hurt or damage and does not change. That means he keeps his word doesn't ever make a promise or swear and then prove false. No, this one always proves true. And for someone not to sin with their tongue, this is one aspect of not sinning with your tongue, but for someone to not sin with their tongue means they're perfect, James chapter 3. And many things we offend all. If any man does not offend in word, the same as a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. William Plummer, as he commented on this passage, says, Perhaps no one thing adds so much to the personal happiness of men as truth-telling, and nothing adds more to the sum of human misery than lying. It's a misery to him who speaks it, to him who hears it, to him of whom it is spoken, it destroys all self-respect and subverts all confidence. It is especially painful to witness the laxity of men's moral sentiments regarding oaths, oaths in the halls of justice, in bills in chancery, in custom houses, and oaths of office. He who swears deceitfully will find no admission to the assembly of the spirits of just men made perfect. And that's a hard statement. Apart from Christ... That sin alone will put you in an eternal lake of fire. I say this as a singular individual. Look at verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord. 
and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to vanity or to falsehood, does not swear deceitfully, this is the life that God blesses. This is the life that God blesses with righteousness. This is someone who has lived an innocent life, a perfect life, a life that's pleasing to God. And I say this as a singular individual. In verse 6, there's a widening to a generation. Verses 4 and 5 is an individual, but verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek him. The generation of those who seek the Lord. And we would say, well... Based upon the description there, if this is a singular individual, if I know that I, that's, that's not me, how, how, could it, how could it be the generation of those who seek the Lord? And we'll come to that in just a moment. I do want to uh, look at verse 6 for a moment and just highlight the fact that a generation can be a description of a group of people. It doesn't have to be time-oriented. It could be a generation, for instance, in the New Testament, a generation of vipers. Spoken of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who oppose Christ, John the Baptist, generation of vipers. They're characterized by their venom and their subtleties, their deceptiveness, describing their character. But this is describing a generation or a group of those who seek the Lord. So singular individual, yes, but then he broadens it out to those who seek the Lord. So those who seek the Lord, this is true of their life, or it will be true of their life. It will be true, because those who are given the gift of righteousness, God saves, he justifies, he sanctifies, and you could say that though it's not perfect, that a person who's being sanctified, verse 4, is growing in those things. And sanctification through life means that I may find myself having sworn deceitfully, but I repent of that, I turn from that, I seek God's forgiveness for that, and I start again to walk in the way that is pleasing to God. But that's not all. Because there's coming a day, if we understand the, the gospel and the doctrine of salvation, it's not just justification or sanctification, it's also glorification. There's our hope, right? Luke, be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect, and, and that's Jesus' direction, and that's where we're striving. But as we strive for that, we realize I know that's what he's commanded of me. I know that's how he's directed me. I know that the word is there to guide me. The spirit is there to help me. But the fulfillment of that does not come until glorification. And in glorification, I will be described like this. Because my life will be according to, it will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's God's purpose for me. That's the destination for me. But I praise the Lord that this psalm doesn't end with verse 6. That there is a singular individual who is the king of glory who can be described as it says in verse 4 and 5. And he has stood in my place, and he has entered in before me as the forerunner. That's what Hebrews says of Christ, that he's the forerunner. This is an interesting portion of this psalm. And for those who look at this as some kind of an Old Testament scene, I think the difference between seeing this as an Old Testament scene after a battle and 
what Christ did as he was victorious over his enemies is just that mention of those ancient doors. Those everlasting doors in verse 7 and verse 9. From earth in verses 1 and 2 to the hill of the Lord. And now as you ascend the hill of the Lord, where do you end up? You end up at some gates. You end up at a city. That city has doors. They're everlasting doors. And the call, and some have envisioned this, Ambrose early church writer envisioned this as an angel who makes the call to those gates, to the gatekeepers, to open the doors. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be, lift up, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So the King of glory has approached, and the King of glory is about to enter into that heavenly city after accomplishing his victory. The question then comes from the gatekeeper, who is this king of glory? And the answer is not any earthly king that you could imagine. You can think of some great kings who've accomplished a lot on this earth, but no one like this king. This is not Alexander. This is not Nebuchadnezzar. This is No earthly king that accomplished some earthly victory. This is a king who came from heaven to earth to defeat his enemies, and now he's entering back in. Who is this king of glory? The angel asks, and the angel replies, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So this cry for the gates to open, the answer to the question, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who owns everything, verses 1 and 2. Yahweh is now entering into this city, the one with everlasting doors. And his name is uttered, and his might is declared. He is called strong and mighty. Exodus 15 spoke of the Lord as a man of battle. The word man is not the same as Adam uh, Adam or Adam, but indicating the Lord had become victorious over his enemies there in Egypt. But here, there's an emphasis on his strength and his might, and then it says the Lord mighty in battle. So not only is his identity declared and his praises are given, but his victory is declared. And what, what's the victory? What was the battle? And you can look at the Old Testament and see lots of battles. We don't need to rehearse all of them, but just think of the battles the Lord won in the Old Testament. Certainly over Egypt, as he led out his people in triumph over Pharaoh, destroyed Pharaoh and all of his army at the Red Sea. It was the Lord who went in the cloud before them, and then when the enemy was threatening, that cloud went to behind them and let the people pass over, and then the Lord destroyed the enemy in the Red Sea. That's a wonderful victory, certainly a battle that demonstrated the might and the power of God. There's the battle of Midian where he defeated the Midianites, 300 men of Israel, because if there were any more, they might get the credit, the Lord said, and through Gideon and those 300 men, he brought victory. There was the battle with the armies of Canaan at Gibeon when the sun stood still. And the scripture says the Lord hurled down great stones from heaven upon the enemy so that more were slain because of those stones than his own people had slain. You could think of the battle of the Philistines when David took his sling and hit Goliath in the head and then cut off his head. And you might say, well, that was... David's victory, but David had already said and claimed that the battle belongs to the Lord. And following that victory of one man over another, a boy over a great giant, Israel chased their enemies all the way to the gates of their cities. There were Philistines everywhere, slaughtered the road. The Lord won that battle too. He defeated Sennacherib, this expeditionary force that came up and conquered all the fortified cities of Judah until it was nearby to Jerusalem, and the threat from Sennacherib came, and Hezekiah took the matter to the Lord. 
And in one night, 185,000 men were slain. And Sennacherib went back to his own land in shame and died in the house of his God. He couldn't even be saved from his own sons. You could look at other battles. Was there ever a battle that Yahweh went into that he did not win? Of course not. But the enemy that was fought as he came to this world and became incarnate was a spiritual enemy. One that was unseen, and not only him, but also all of his minions, the demons. And we know the story of the gospel, when the Lord Jesus came and he's casting out all sorts of demons, destroying the work of the devil, opposing the devil, resisting the devil, that he came and he did battle. And I love one pastor, as he was preaching on the victory that Christ won, he, he said Christ actually came and he took the, the weapon that the enemy had and he used it against himself and he defeated him. He took death. And in a moment when Satan thought that he had the victory, it was at that very moment that Christ conquered his enemy. Mighty in battle, not only because he took death and defeated our enemy, but he also rose again. And as he rose again, he's vindicated. Yahweh mighty in battle, yes, Yahweh mighty in battle, victorious over all of his enemies, but even that enemy who's more powerful than any earthly force. That's the one who's knocking on heaven's door, so to speak. And a second cry comes. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The insistence here, someone has said, is because it's right for him to enter, he has the authority to enter, He is to enter. This is not to be denied. And of course, the angels aren't denying it. But the cry or the call comes again. And as that call comes, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The question comes again. And it's not answered the same way. It kind of looks like it at first. This isn't just a direct repetition, immediate repetition. It says the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, who are those armies? Well, there's the army of angels that he made, all of whom serve him and worship him. Of course, the devil and his angels defected, but they were defeated, and he is going to deal with them finally. We see that from the Word of God, and he rules over them. So there are those hosts, there are those armies. And then you have the human armies. The Israelites were called the host of the Lord. And so those who follow the Lord and serve his purposes as he leads, those are his hosts. You could even point to the heavenly hosts, and he made those too. So Host, 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 depends on the context. If you're looking at a passage of Scripture and there's a particular emphasis, you may be able to identify the host, but the reality is he's the Lord of all those hosts. And if you are his worshiper, you're one of his hosts. What's interesting about this title, the Lord of hosts, is when we're talking about Yahweh... He is almighty. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. He doesn't need a servant to accomplish his will. He can speak things into existence, and he has. And so when you have omnipotence, and then you have his armies, does your mind just kind of 
explode. You ever seen that emoji, right? The, your, your mind kind of explodes when you see that. You see what I'm saying? In other words, this is Yahweh Almighty and his armies with him. You could not have a stronger expression of the power, the might of God, the glory of this king. There is no king like him. And he's entering heaven. What do you think those angels are doing as he enters, as the gates are opened? And we're really talking about a moment, aren't we? A moment following the resurrection. There's days of instruction of his disciples. And then the Son of Man rises up from the earth as he's blessing his disciples into a cloud. And Matthew Henry says, He knew the way. He'd been there before. And he comes up to those everlasting gates to the praise of all of the angels, to the delight of the Father, to come, here is heaven's king, here is the king of glory coming to sit at the right hand after accomplishing his victory for us. A man has entered into the heavens, not only a man, the God-man, the one who has obtained for us that righteousness, which when we believe upon him is then imputed to us, and then he works out his will and his grace in our lives, and we start to, we start to live, verse 4 and 5. Praise the Lord for the King of glory. Are you worshiping him today? You might have come today and your eyes are not on him. Perhaps they're on something else. I just want to encourage you today to worship the king of glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we bow, we do praise you for sending your son to this world. We thank you for his victory. We thank you for his glory. We thank you that that glory that he has will be shared in some way with those who have followed him. We will never gain that essential glory that he has as God, but you will, by your grace, grant us a likeness to Jesus We will reign together with him. We thank you for his victory today. And I do pray, Lord, if there's someone here who does not know the Lord Jesus, has never turned from their sins and put their trust in him for salvation, for that gift of righteousness, that today would be a day when they turn from their sins and trust in him and find eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.